Welcome to Technically Speaking here on LJN Radio. I'm your host, Tim Muma. On this episode, we're speaking with Charles Morgan, chairman and CEO for Privacy Star. However, his career has had some impressive checkpoints in the world of big data, including his role as founder, chairman, and CEO of Axiom Corporation. Now, he documents this journey in his book, Matters of Life and Data, and we're happy to have him on the show today. Charles, thanks for joining us on LJN Radio. Tim, thank you very much. We've had a brief prior conversation, so this ought to be fun. Well, you know, obviously you're such an expert in this area, and I can already tell the passion that you have for it just in our little conversation before the show here. I wanted to start off, though, just by asking about your book, Matters of Life and Data. What compelled you to decide to write something like this and, and really pour out your knowledge and your really just your experiences that you've had throughout your life and your professional career? Well, part of it is just the things that we were talking about a few minutes ago. I seem like I've always been involved in these obscure things like data and marketing databases, security breaches. And years and years ago, a lot of people in the area where our business was founded, it's in Arkansas, they were kind of a unique individual, unique animal in Arkansas to build a tech company. So I had a lot, a lot of people say, can you, why don't you write a little book or something and tell all the world what you all do? I've never understood it. Uh, you know, we had almost 3,000 employees in the central Arkansas area. So we tried to hire the best and the brightest. So people come up to me at dinner and say, you know, I've got a cousin or I've got a niece. I've got somebody that works at Axiom, but I've never figured out what they do. Sure. You ought to write a book. So all of us in Arkansas, not what. But anyhow, I had a, a lot of people that, that talked to me about that. But there's one other thing that was very important is I formed a lot of opinions. When I started building a company, I was an engineer, Tim. I didn't know anything hmm. about running a company. I had observed IBM. I had a great career at IBM. I was a mechanical engineer, though, for God's sake. <laughs> I was pretty, you know, I was a pretty, you know, I still love to do old mechanical engineering stuff on the side. It's kind of my hobby, but the software and programming and all that stuff was just my passion. But, you know, I started running Axiom with no guide. I didn't know what to do, how to manage it, how to lead it, mm -hmm. other than I wanted to hire smart people. My, that was my basic concept, hire smart people. I soon figured out just hiring smart people and let them run crazy is not doesn't solve every problem. You've still got to meet the payroll and you know do all this stuff. So I began to develop ideas about management and sort of a greenfield experience for me. You know, I read Tom Peters, I read a number of experts, and went to a few seminars. But for the most part. I sort of figured it out, and it was a trial and error for me, but I did come away with a lot of what I would call well, fairly well-formed opinions about what it takes to build and lead a business. Was there something in the book that you were most proud of, either something you felt you expressed really well, or maybe you've had good feedback on in terms of what you were able to get in the book and get across? Well, the thing that I think I got across is those people who've read it It is titled a memoir, Tim, mm -hmm. and really talks about my life because the life that you lead in your company, the life you lead at home, and the things you do come from your background. They come from your training and those around you and those all those things that you figure out. And I guess the thing I'm most proud of is I have 
had a number of people say, matter of fact, a guy that interviewed me just uh, last week interviewed me, and he said, you know, this is one of the best business books I've ever read. And I went, thank you very much, because I wanted to write a business book without having how-to chapters mm. in it. I wanted to write a book that you could read the whole book. If you read it carefully, you would say, yeah, there really is something to this concept of business culture. I get it. I understand how I got there. And it makes sense. And I had another guy. He said, you know, I read your book. And then I said, I don't think I completely got it. He said, I read it all the way again. And I figured out what you were doing. You're writing a business book, weren't you? <laughs> he said, it's the most unique business book I've ever read. I said, and so I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of mm-hmm. is that people who have read the book carefully say it is a very meaningful and significant business book. And, and that's really what I wanted to do because I wanted the idea of teaching people and seeing individuals and people develop. That gives me as much thrill as anything else is when I can see young people that I have, you know, hired and helped train, grow and, and to be very successful at home and in the office. And I've got a number of those working in my current company now. It's pretty neat to see people if I hired right out of college and mm-hmm. I love to hire college, you know, young people right out of college who still do that and have those people. I've got, you know, two people working at Privacy Star right now that I personally hired right out of college in about 1990 or about that time frame. And we've hired a number since then here at Privacy Star. So sure. that's the thing I'm, I guess, most proud of. So that's interesting that you bring that up. Is that something... I guess, where does that come from as far as you wanting to personally hire someone or get to know someone before they're brought into your organization? Uh, well, I guess, what's the reasoning behind that? Because a lot of people just say, yeah, I have my HR people. I have my department to do this. Well, I, I agree with you, and I think that's a tragic mistake. Again, that's part of that culture thing. Mm-hmm. Years and years ago, the one thing I got out of IBM was it's all about the people you have in, in the company. It is the quality of people, their, you know, their brains, their ability to work with others and a lot you can teach people a lot of stuff but you can't teach them to be smart you can't teach them to be good programmers if they have no aptitude you can't teach everybody good people skills so to get really good people i felt like it was involved it was very important to hire a you know a raters as i will call them for, for the terms of this and those people, if they're involved in the hiring, will hire other A's. Mm-hmm. But if you know A's hire B's and B's hire C's, pretty soon your company could be in trouble. And you see, all too often, people are are hiring people that they don't feel threatened by. Mm-hmm. And I also think if you leave it to HR, they don't necessarily have the skills to make those decisions. And so years and years ago, I began to lead by example, which is, again, part of the culture. And I would you know, go to the various universities for interview days. I wouldn't, I wouldn't initially go up there for days, but I would go to, a, for example, University of Arkansas and other, other universities and spend a day, and I would interview 12 young people. Mm-hmm. At our new company, we are just reinstituting that process right now. 
Speaking of uh, your company, Privacy Star, I was curious if you could give the listeners a little bit of an idea of what that is all about and what kind of your goals are with that organization. That could that could wipe out our twenty minutes, <laughs> but <laughs> I get well, that. I get that. But you're a pro. You can you can come up with something. That was a really a dangerous question. Uh, I'd like to leave it open for the for the guests. So go where you want with it. You know, we started off building applications that help people block calls and help people find out about who was calling and create a ability to to control inbound calls on their mobile handsets. And we started out with BlackBerry and now we're on Android primarily. The application was not just an app, but it had a lot of technology around it to identify scammers and to identify debt collectors, identify telemarketers. Mm -hmm. So not only did we let people block calls, but we would, for example, today our application blocks all scammers. Unless you turn it off, we know tens of thousands, well, hundreds of thousands of numbers that are scammers from all over the world, and they're blocked. I, I get one blocked about every two days, and we also warn people. I just a little while ago got a, a call, and it said, you know, warned me that it was a known telemarketer. Mm -hmm. So there had been multiple complaints have been filed against. So the whole original idea was to just help people with inbound calls, but we always knew that we were limited on what we could do on handsets. For example, Apple, the iPhone, you know, Steve Jobs didn't think people ought to be able to get inside the call flows. So we can't block calls on iPhone. We can't do a lot of stuff on iPhone. We can do on Android. Sure. But we are now working with the major carriers around the world. And that the idea when I say in network, I want to get to be to the point that you on your mobile handset can completely control your inbound calling experience. Mm -hmm. You can say what do you want to do. You, you can say what you want what you want to do with scammers. What you want to do with telemarketers. Obviously, hopefully, you want to block scammers. We want to do the minimum possible to interrupt your normal experience. We just want to get rid of the scammers and want you to don't be bothered by telemarketers. And if you have financial problems, I want you to be just daily harassed by the debt collectors. Sure. One of the things that we can do in network, we can do what we call knock-knock, which we can demonstrate on iPhone. And someone calls you that we consider a suspicious character. We don't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. Know that there maybe have been complaints or something that causes suspicion about that number. We can answer that call in the network and play the message. Please say your name and I will see if your called party is available. Okay. In other words, you have to recite your name. Well, if you're a scammer or you're a robo-dialer, you're probably not going to be smart enough to recite your name. <laughs> right. So that's just an example of, of, of something we can, you know, we are show, we're working with AT&T on right now. So it's uh, a little bit of analytics, but it basically is a technology business, but it's all data-driven. We have to build data and analytics to be able to figure out who the good guys are and the bad guys are. We've got to give you control over that as well as your own personal data. And you've got to be sure that it's your personal data that we have. If you give us your contacts to whitelist, that we're not going to do anything to allow that data to be you know, hacked or stolen or right. 
we wouldn't sell it. So, well, I'm sure uh, most of our listeners are going to be happy to hear that uh, you know you're doing something along those lines. I'm, I think you could talk to anybody, and they've had issue in some capacity, as you said, with scammers or callers in some way. You mentioned the idea, obviously, of data there, and that's something we were briefly talking about before the show as well. How much of a concern do you have in terms of hackers or the insecure data that's out there in terms of businesses, especially, but even just personal information as well? I mean, how, how far does it go or how concerned are you about that? Uh, well, it's a tremendous problem and I am concerned about it because, you know, I, I always ask people, what kind of mobile device do you have? And do you have an iPhone or an Android or what have you got? To you? I have an Android. Okay. Well, do you have a flashlight app? I do not. You're one of the few people I know that have a flashlight. <laughs> you must have better eyes than I do. But uh, flashlight apps uh, are notorious data thieves, mm. so don't get one. <laughs> oh, good to know. <laughs> Unless it's an Android, you know, system or supplied by the carrier, because flashlight apps are the worst data thieves anywhere, and they're all sorts of applications that are stealing data, and many of them are misusing it, unfortunately. Mm. So that's just one example. But the, I think the biggest problem that we have is the poor data security being implemented. After all this time, we have, you know, Chrysler last week said, you know, they were doing a major recall because people were able to steal their cars. There were, you know, I think 600,000 cars stolen in the UK last year. People hacked cars and just drove off in them. You know, it's crazy. I mean, mm. come on. <laughs> we ought to know better than that. We have the Office of Personnel Management Budget that had 24 million people's data stolen, everything about them stolen from kids' names to, you know, security clearances. And, and then just today, Mobile Warehouse in the UK announced that they had been hacked and they had 2.4 million of their customers got all their customer records including bank information mm. their equivalent of social security number ages you know names er everything about them so you know i say to people hey tim don't worry somebody's stolen your credit card <laughs> but the question is have they done anything bad with it yet just watch out because one day they probably will you know, Charles, let me jump in there. And, and it's funny you say that because I've often joked that with people. I said, hey, if somebody wants to get something of mine, they're probably going to in this day and age. Yeah. Not to not to not be vigilant at all with what's going on. But I guess that's the big question is you said we should know better, especially big businesses or government. You should know better. Why does it continue to happen? Can people just not keep up with the hackers? Are we just not taking it serious? I don't know what it is. Axiom, for example, has data from all the big banks. Mm -hmm. We got hacked early on because our security wasn't very good in around 2000. And the banks, I can remember we got a, I, I can't remember exactly how many records from Citibank, maybe a couple of others compromised. And it was at least enough information that it was worrisome. It was on a server that was used to send data back and forth to the bank and to other suppliers. When that occurred and we notified Citibank, Citibank sent about 50 people down here. They absolutely went apoplectic. <laughs> well, that was one of the first times Citibank had, you know, had any of their data hacked. Of course, since then, they've been hacked a number of times, as have you know, a lot of the other banks and Target and everybody else on you know, the big business. But Axiom hadn't been hacked anymore. 
interesting. And I think now, to my knowledge, in the last about 13 years, Axiom hadn't been hacked. They have all that data just because they put in place a lot of really, we did, put in place a lot of very good security procedures sure. and just stopped it. It can be done, but when you have single factor authorization of the office personnel manager, what you've got through their firewall, and you've got to be able to get through a firewall in too many ways you can penetrate. Once you get through the firewall, it's like, okay, you know, you're on the inside. It's candy land. They have minimals <laughs> that you get on the inside. Mm -hmm. It's like having a sieve and thinking somehow or other somebody can't get through it. Come on. It's ridiculous. And they get through it, and inside the security is terrible. There are absolutely, there's absolutely no excuse for the poor quality of, of security that people use. And let, let me just quickly say, if somebody gets inside of the firewall, the Office of Personnel Management, and, and there is clearly an enormous amount of data in, in that whole infrastructure, Somebody had to spend a lot of time roaming around, looking at servers, and reading data. It was very unusual activity on many fronts. Mm -hmm. And if they and even, let's say their security is lousy, but they, had, they kept a watchful eye. In other words, they used tools to monitor the activity right. on all their databases. That's all they would have had to do because they would have seen unusual activity. They would have had to have seen unusual activity. And nobody was looking. Guaranteed, nobody was looking. Hmm. Well, we are running low on time, Charles. Uh, I have appreciated the insight you've given us. And as I mentioned off the top, the passion you have for these subjects. I wanted to ask you about centralizing an approach to cybersecurity. What are your thoughts on that? And what might that entail? If you can, somewhat put it in a nutshell. Well, my thought is the centralized approach has almost got to come from our federal government mm -hmm. as much as I hate to see you, I cringe to think, but <laughs> instead of having one of the, you know, guys like the NSA do that, which I think is not a good idea, have somebody like the Commerce Department be responsible for establishing standards, quality standards for security, for every aspect of security. The SSL layer, which protects data on the internet, is managed by a group, halfway group of volunteers for that. That's is an open software standard, and the software is just, you know, it's kind of a whole volunteer network. Sure. Yes, a lot of companies contribute to it, but it's it's just not very well done mm -hmm. and not well managed. If we had standards and without going on too much by the Commerce Department. I, I even suggested repurposing. So those are one of the main things. I mean, what's this all about? Commerce. Right. Repurposing Commerce Department so that they focus heavily on building a safe, secure environment for us. But they would not necessarily be the watchdogs, but they could publish standards and say, if you don't follow these standards, you are out of spec. And I get the rest of the world can police it. You're not going to do business with somebody that's not doesn't meet standards, right? Mm -hmm. Right. All you can do is say they've got to publish their compliance with all these standards. If they don't match it, but right now there's no standard to publish against. Sure. You know, let's let Citibank say we are uh, certified under all these standards, and that would do more than anything else to help. They could certify software. They could certify processes of how to 
protect different kind of assets without being in the policing business. They just set the standards and let the rest of the world police them. Charles, good stuff. I do appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy man. So thank you once again for coming on the show. Appreciate it, Tim. Thank you. That will do it for us here on Technically Speaking. Again, we'd like to thank Charles Morgan for joining us on the show. He is the chairman and CEO for Privacy Star, and he has a book out called Matters of Life and Data. So go ahead and check that out if you have any interest in the history and the rundown of big data in the world of business. If you want to get in touch with us about this show or any of our episodes, send us an email, ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. You can also find us on Twitter at the LJN, and you can always find our shows on iTunes. Just search LJN Radio in the iTunes store. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tim Muma. Take care, everybody.